Warning, the following podcast has some foul language. You may wish to earmuff the impressionable. It's Wednesday, June 22nd, 2022. From Peachfish Productions, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. On the day Donald Trump lost the presidential election, Derek Evans was elected to the West Virginia state legislature. Evans couldn't believe it. Oh no, not his own win, which he would back out of in a few months for reasons that will become clear. He couldn't believe that Trump lost. So he did what thousands of others did. He posted on social media. He attended the Stop the Steal rally in Washington, D.C. And wearing a helmet and riot gear, he stormed the Capitol. Here he is announcing his status on Facebook. We're in! We're in! Derek Evans is in the Capitol! Derek Evans is in the Capitol. Within days, Derek Evans would be in custody, thanks in no small part to that bit of brand extension. Soon, Derek Evans will be in prison for three months. The government, which had been seeking six months, made a couple of interesting arguments about Evans that I think could be applied to certain other self-aggrandizing politicians who seek to riot without repercussion. One of the interesting points goes to the idea that there are times in the video that Evan shared with the world that you could hear him calling his fellow insurrectionists to keep it cool. In fact, he does say this. No vandalizing property. No vandalizing. Housing. No vandalizing. All right. No vandalizing. This is artifacts, all right? No vandalizing. And here's what prosecutors say about that. Quote, Evan suggested that his occasional admonishments to fellow rioters to, quote, keep it peaceful or not destroy property mitigate the nature and circumstances of his offense. These statements under other circumstances would be mitigating, but here, any discouragement of violence or destruction on Evans's part is completely subsumed by Evans' consistent encouragement of other rioters to charge police to invade the Capitol building despite the police presence and barriers indicating the area was restricted and to breach the rotunda doors in spite of pepper spray and flashbangs. Evans even protests when another rioter says it's time to leave. Evan responds, no, it ain't. The doors are open. The doors are open. It's no time to leave. We haven't done nothing yet. So there we have a defense of the intention of someone who rioted or encouraged rioting. The intention could have been benign because there were some statements in a raft of contradictory statements that said to, in fact, be peaceful. We had every admonition and its opposite, pointing to the exculpatory language, that's what the defendant was doing, ignoring the inculpatory language afterwards. Huh. Hmm. Evans also quotes the founders as justifying his actions from the prosecutor's memo again. Evans characterizes the riot as, quote, an example of democracy, albeit dysfunctional, in action. He includes a quotation of Thomas Jefferson, stating that, quote, a little rebellion now and then is a good thing, and rebellions should be, quote, so mild in their punishment as to not discourage them too much. Those words, what that memo that I was quoting to you was saying, was from Evans, his own memo to the judge. Prosecutors seized on those points. They noted that inciting Thomas Jefferson as justification, quote, Evans equates colonists' 18th century fight for independence from the imperial British with the January 6th assault on this country's democratically elected government. This argument is nothing less than a continued attack on the rule of law and a dangerous endorsement of political violence. 
Indeed it is, and you get no free pass, even if the insurrectionist you quote does have a monument right across the river from where you rioted. Court documents show that Evans began contemplating deleting his Facebook Live posts almost immediately after leaving the Capitol, but many copies were preserved, giving prosecutors a relatively simple task. One of the last statements the former elected official said to his viewers was, quote, I don't know where I'm going, but I'm following the crowd. On the show today, how about a political scandal that has it all? $4 million stuffed in a sofa, international intrigue, an armless soccer player, antelopes, and the president of South Africa tangling with the country's former spy master. But first, Duke University professor of political science, Sunshine Hillegas, joins us to discuss how young voters' expectations of voting actually keeps them away from the ballot box. Professor Sunshine Hillegas, up next. Sunshine Hillegas is a political science professor at Duke University who studies public engagement and is especially focused on youth voting trends. Her latest book is Making Young Voters, Converting Civic Attitudes into Civic Action. But our conversation started on the subject of how high percentages of Americans are said to believe in clearly false and dangerous theories. For instance, Pew reports of the theory that powerful people intentionally plan the coronavirus outbreak. 5% of Americans say it's definitely true and 20% say it's probably true. Say it's probably true. The polling on Pizzagate reflects similar levels of belief. An exceptionally high number of people, one in four, say violence against the government is sometimes justified, according to the COVID States Project. Hillegas seriously doubts those numbers. I put it to her. You think 25% of people don't, in fact, believe Pizzagate? Where that COVID was planned? I have real concerns with with some of that literature for exactly these same reasons. Um, and and so, so, do you think twenty nine percent don't believe in Pizzagate? Like, what do you think the real number is? Well, or so, QAnon? Yeah, yeah, I mean, so the so the the interesting thing is is it, I guess my takeaway is that um, we you know about half of what those numbers were were ones that like I would just toss out immediately like it's it's not that number i would cut it uh, cut it in half on the other hand um, one of the the things that, that I've been studying is what are the implications of the fact that we are asking that question and reporting that question over and over and over again that eventually right you ask enough times is Obama's birth certificate you know real then then you know we know from uh, psychology and persuasion literature that eventually that, you know, introduces um, enough stickiness that that is the type of thing that um, actually now when you look at that question, that that a lot of it is not trolling, that 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 people have kind of, you know, internalized that there is some uncertainty about it. And and so, um, I, I, you know, it's my belief that that some of this research is actually doing harm in studying um, and and asking about some of these crazy beliefs. 
But also in the age of polarization, it would seem to me that um, just asking about a crazy belief would reinforce the crazy belief. But if the crazy belief has a partisan sheen to it, the other side might say, well, I've got to adopt not maybe a crazy belief, but real animosity towards these people who think that Pizzagate QAnon, the election was stolen. So I I got at this when I was evaluating all the questions and literature about civil war. Are we headed to a civil war? You see enough studies and you see enough books that indicate we're headed towards a civil war and it always seems to be coming from the right, the left might become more radicalized as a result of being told that this is the reality of where their opponents are. Absolutely. Absolutely. And 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 that's where, um, you know, this is the, the, the incentive to put something in. It's kind of funny. It's a good headline. It's going to, you know, it's clickbait. I call it, you know, clickbait surveys. Right. Or um, just honest, I really think a lot of people pushing out this information about the radicalization of the right are incredibly earnest or not trying to make a buck on it or really worried about democracy. That is a um, very generous, a generous <laughs> very yeah. generous review. I mean, at the end of the day, I say, you know, that that media organizations are businesses. They want readers. They want clicks. Right. And so we can't separate um, from, you know, we can't remove that incentive um, because even even, the, you know, the best media organizations um, are still putting out the stories that are getting um, the clicks and, you know, to, to and, and phrasing them away and putting the headlines in, in such a way. And and that drives us to focusing on division, um, even when you know, it, it is contributing to that division to, to, to focus on it. And so I, you know, I don't know what the necessarily the solution is. And it's not to say that people aren't honestly concerned about where we're headed. Um, but, but I think the the reality is, is we do not have a, a, a clear and honest picture being presented, um, you know, in the information environment um, right now. And, and that's, well, I agree with that. But to defend my generosity, I would just cite something like an esteemed professor with uh, expertise in the field, Barbara Walter, writes a book that is about the possibility of civil war in America. She's not lying in her research. Her research has been checked and peer reviewed and uh, it gets reviewed everywhere in the country. So, you know, it seems like maybe this is true. Some survey data seems to, you know, maybe back this up. The FBI says that domestic white supremacist terrorists are the number one domestic challenge to America. Well, that seems to be concerning. The January 6th commission has almost no Republican buy-in. You know, one of our two political parties seems extremely uninterested in uh, reviewing the facts facts about that. You add it all up, uh, it might be something other than clickbait driving. No, it for might, sure. For you know, sure. It's something like anxiety plus clickbait plus um, a decent amount of actual Yeah, evidence. yeah. And, and, and I guess I, I would say the thing that I would focus on as where we need to focus attention is less on the public, right? And, and more on what accounts for this disconnect in what the, the GOP is doing it, you know, despite, right, a public that doesn't, um, you know, fully, you know, fully agree with, with, with what they're doing. Right. We think that, well, I don't know if we even think this because we don't think that it, we're susceptible to it, but we think other people are extremely susceptible to bad information. 
And the proof is that they're wrong and there's a lot of bad information in their ecosystem. And by the way, that works both ways. We just usually don't see it when it's working on our side. The exceptions being uh, podcasters and political scientists, of course, they see it clearly. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and and actually, I mean, this is, um, you know, my recent book, Making Young Voters, you know, this feels really different perhaps than like, okay, polarization and, and persuasion and so on. But actually, you know, one of the the themes that we really talk about um, is the fact that so many young people are politically interested, they care, um, and yet they don't go vote, right? And and part of the reason that we find that they're not going to vote is because um, they think everybody else out there is doing all of this extensive research about, you know, all of the candidates and all of the issues. And and they had planned to do more research and they just never got around to it. And young people have this unrealistic expectation about what they need to know to be a good voter. And the reality is most people don't care that much about politics and they shouldn't have to care that much about politics. And maybe that affects, you know, your your audience numbers. But but the reality is, is we should be able to just live our life and go to the ballot box and voter interests. And and you can and you can. You don't have to know about every issue and and every and every candidate. And young people in particular um, have really fallen prey to this idea that in this hyper-information environment where you can learn about everything, that that's what everyone else is doing. Where old people, they just go out to vote. They they know they can skip it down the ballot race if they don't understand anything, or they can vote straight party if they want to, right? But they don't have this um, unrealistic expectation about what is required to be a good voter um, that young people young people do. And and that's actually bad for democracy that, that we have those people staying home um, instead of participating. Um, and so so anyway, I, I guess I guess the point here is 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 that you know democracy needs to be able to function without us having to pay that much attention. Okay, so here's an interesting, I think, implication of what you're saying. On the one hand, Um, People who want heightened civic participation will point to the fact that young people are idealistic is a good thing. That is the countervailing force to the idea that young people are apathetic. You know, look, children of the future, not just Greta Thunberg, but actual Americans who get out there and are idealistic. But you're saying that too much idealism actually gets in the way of mass participation. Absolutely. Absolutely. So is it not true that it's good that they're idealistic? I mean, it is, but then you also need to be told that, um, the, you know, what it takes to be a good voter is not very much, right? Like people are able, you you don't have to, you know, look across the country and find your favorite candidate of everyone out there who's eligible, right? You need to look between a D and an R and figure out, you know, which one is going to best represent your interests. And it doesn't take very much to do that. And that's, and, and, and so because of polarization, young people are, disgusted with both sides of the aisle, right? They don't want to be party voters. Like they want to instead, you know, think about all the issues and they, and, and so we have created an environment in which we're, uh, you know, we're, we're both, um, you know, people could do research every minute of every day and still not learn about every single candidate in, in all of the issues. And, yeah. and so we, we don't do a very good job in, in telling new and young voters 
that you're good enough. It's you're good. You can do a good job just by looking, looking around at what's going on in the world. You don't have to know about, you can, you don't even have to vote in the dog catcher race if you don't want to, like you just need to show up. Right. Like, Mm. um, and, and that, um, that, expectation about what is required is something that it, it, it creates massive gaps in um, participation among young and old people and it is ultimately detrimental. Do you think there's any kind of right messaging that could, I could think of arguments that would frame that uh, correctly, but I don't know if that messaging would get through. Um, I could think of something like you could put forward an argument. You don't have to be perfect. You just have to cancel out this 60-year-old dummy's vote. That's all (laughs) you have to do. He's not perfect and he's going to vote. You better cancel him out. But I think that something's going on with that the people who give the message are already inside this system of activists and the young people who are going to vote. Like we don't think about the young people who don't vote. Um, all the all the messaging, all the strategy, um, everything around it is based on your students at Duke or a young person who might listen to the show or someone who's not the problem. Yeah, and and, and truthfully, and the other thing that happens is we assume that because that young, you know, because that niece or nephew that talks a lot about politics um, is clearly like interested, they must be doing all the things to actually turn out and vote. But but that's that's the key thing that we point out is that the vast majority of young people are interested and motivated and they still don't vote. Right. So, 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 you know, all of those, you know, rock the vote and bringing out celebrities to say, Oh, voting's cool. And you just need to care more. And like, that's, that's all junk. Right. I I mean, it's not junk, but it's just, it's focusing on the wrong problem. The problem is not that young people don't care. The problem is, is young people are not following through on their um, existing attitudes and intentions to vote. And, and part of that is, is because it's so damn hard to get registered and vote in this country. Um, And part of that is because they have this misperception about what it takes to be a good voter. And they don't want to just be a party hack. The passion versus practical gap. That's pretty much it. Yeah. And you also talk about that the predictor of if uh, young people will vote is not their passion. It's just how much, I don't know if you have a rubric for this, but how much they have their shit together overall. If they're the kind of person who registers for classes on time or at all, they're going to be the kind of person who votes. And if they're the kind of person who forgets that they have to actually play paying car insurance, they're not. And it's not that they don't care about issues. It's just that we don't have a developed prefrontal cortex until we're 25, maybe. Yeah, I mean, exactly. And and I mean, I, I would put it a slightly different way, though, is the fact that we find that pattern really just highlights how difficult we make it to register to vote um, in in this country. So, you know, and and it, especially when you consider the variation across states um, in, uh, you know, you, you look at kids who have, um, you know, moved from one state to the next for college and, and it, there's just some crazy variation. So then do you think that all these stories which are valid about uh, voter suppression or long lines at the polls or the difficulty thereof, are they having a rebound effect of suppressing turnout among the young? So one of the things I think we we saw is it, it served a little bit as a mobilization message, right? I mean, these very deliberate law changes that were, you know, aimed um, at young people, um, actually, you know, in, in a place like Georgia, motivated people more. But, but 
those law changes have continued. Um, and um, there are hundreds of state legislative laws that have been um you know, uh, considered since um, the last election that would make um, voting more restrictive. And and so, you know, just like, let me just walk through, you know, a, a, an example. So um, it, there's a lot of states out there where if you were as young as 16, you can do what's called pre-register to vote. So um, this is filling out your registration form so that, you know, when you turn 18, you don't have to to register again, right? You're like you're already in the system and, and you've removed that barrier. Um, in the state of Texas, you have to be 17 years and 10 months old before you can fill out your registration form. Okay, 17 years and 10 months old. And you have to be registered 30 days in advance of the election. So imagine you are the youngest, right, person who's going to be eligible for the election. Like you have a window, a tiny little a window yeah. in, in which to register Between to 17 and 10 months and 17 and 11 months. And I don't know if Texas counts the date of the month or if they take into account that February is fewer days and do it as a percentage of the calendar, but I wouldn't put any of that <laughs> so, past them. So, but let's, let's also keep in mind that Texas doesn't allow you to register to vote online. Okay, so you now you're going to have to, you can download the form, but then you have to find a stamp? Like who freaking uses a stamp these days? Or go in and fill it out. Okay, so, you know, we, we have a lot of um, groups in this country that, that have registration drives to, to try and help young people to vote. Well, in the state of Texas, if you're going to register somebody else to vote, you have to be deputized as a, a registrar. And that is a, a deputization that expires um, every two years. Um, okay, so figure that you are a new college student moving into the state and you are the youngest and you're trying to get registered. Well, you know, you need to have a driver's license um, to, to be able to vote. Your college ID is not going to to work, um, but your gun license will. So like the, just like the the barriers that are in place in a state like Texas for a young person to vote actually matters. It actually matters. And and so, you know, the the fact that we saw a pretty profound increase in in youth turnout in Texas in the last in election cycle, I think was in part a reaction to this sense of of voter suppression. That's not sustainable, right? Like instead, I mean, especially in a, in a midterm election, that's where you're just my prediction would be, you know, youth turnout is just going to dive, nosedive um, this election cycle. Sunshine Hilligus is a professor of political science and public policy at Duke. She's the author of Making Young Voters, Converting Civic Attitudes into Civic Actions, and The Persuadable Voter, Wedge Issues in Political Campaigns. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. And now the spiel. A typical presidential scandal in the U.S. asks the questions, what did the president know and when did he know it? In South Africa, the question's a bit different as posed here. Who came and bought what? Were we even allowed a glimpse into the goings-on at Palapala Farm? And my goodness, are we all interested? 
South Africa is now very interested in cattle and animal sales on President Cyril Ramaphosa's farm because of revelations that two years ago, the farm was burgled. Thieves stole some four to eight million dollars, and it's important to the story that it was in dollars. This hall was stored, as per the best practices of home security, stuffed in a sofa I do not understand how one stuffs forty to eighty thousand hundred dollar bills in a sofa. Maybe the sofa was made of hundred thousand dollar bills, but the allegations, as revealed in a recently leaked Namibian investigation, is that the bills were in a sofa. Namibia. Oh yes, this story has international dimensions. The two-year-old robbery was revealed by South Africa's former spymaster, Arthur Frazier, who is out to get his political rival, President Ramaphosa. The allegation is that Ramaphosa covered up the theft because keeping that many dollars as dollars violates national law. Ramaphosa is also said to have made the investigation go away after alleged thieves were detained in the Namibian capital, Windhoek. One, Emanuela David, was caught sneaking across the border, and he was revealed to have been aided by police and the chief executive of Namibia's state-owned fishing company, which of course brings to mind the stench of fish rot. What's fish rot? Oh, that is the name of the big Namibian fishing scandal, as reported with lurid levels set to 11 by Al Jazeera. The files reveal that two Namibian cabinet members, the Minister of Fisheries and the Minister of Justice, are accused of accepting bribes. You didn't know that your company was receiving money? Well, I challenge you that we had received money. I'll show you the bank statements here. The fish may rot from the head down, but Namibian officials were concerned with the minnows. Not just David, but fellow suspect Erki Shikongo, who denies any wrongdoing, though does acknowledge that he knows the other accused men except one. The name of that man on the list of supposed partners in crime, one Petrus Afrikaner. A cursory internet search reveals these details of the life of Petrus Afrikaner. Warning, warning, Mike Pesca is about to go off on a tangent. Petrus Afrikaner had to often endure unjustified and shameless emotional abuse during his career as a member of top football clubs, Flying Eagles, the Orlando Pirates, and 11 Arrows. He was, according to an article, constantly mocked by thugs masquerading as football fans for the fact that at the age of 13, he lost his right hand, quote, in a freak accident whilst working in a poorly equipped local butchery. Petrus Afrikaner, nicknamed Arm Pie, the article goes on to note, was mocked by opposing players who, quote, constantly signaled or challenged him to assume the duties of throw-ins, knowing very well this was a no-go area for the speedy forward. Nonetheless, he managed to weather the storm, putting his detractors to shame by expertly manufacturing excellent performances on the field week in and week out. That story in the Namibian newspaper, New Era, titled The Real Story Behind the Missing Arm, Mr. Petrus Armpi Afrikaner. It does not give a time frame for the exploits chronicled 
And I cannot say if it's likely or unlikely that the accused sofa thief is the same fleet soccer player. It certainly remains a possibility. Back to the main story. The contours of this scandal are still uncertain. The consequences even less so. Ramaphosa was brought into office as reform-minded. That's what he sold to the public as the successor to his corrupt predecessor, Jacob Zuma. Now, in a typically incendiary decoration, Julius Malema, the leader of South Africa's extreme leftist political party, an expert roller of R's, laid out the consequence should a cover-up have occurred. We know that Sir Ramaphosa is at the forefront of corruption, including money laundering, racketeering, and fraud hidden in game farm activities. Ramaphosa and his handlers involved in the game farming industry are illegally transacting in foreign currency and in cash. Now, for the president to have a lucrative side business, that's not illegal. To transact business in dollars would be. Which brings us back to ECN reporter Moloko Maloto outside the Palapala farm in the town of Bela Bela. The cattle that the president breeds uh, were, uh, are not located at Palapala. They are somewhere at one of his other farms. That proved to be a dead end, ultimately for the rare game as well because they are auctioned off for breeding and to be hunted for trophies. Ramaphosa dubs himself a, quote, rare game breeder of the future, offering for sale such animals as disease-free buffalo, white impala, roan antelope, black kudu, and sable antelope. Sales records show that a bull called Cumulus received a price of 1.65 million rand, or $100,000. Questions remain about the theft about the cover-up, about the crime, about, about the kudu. Recently, Ramaphosa acknowledged that there was a burglary, but he denies the amounts taken were anywhere near 4 to $8 million. He has not commented on his monetary storage techniques, nor has he answered the charges that he spent government resources on quieting the investigation into ill-gotten gains from ill-fated game. Namibian officials thwarted in their initial investigations into Chicago, David, and Afrikaner have apparently given up. They have other fish to fry. We will be monitoring future developments and tracking all the very, very specific details to emerge. Reporting both from Brooklyn and Palapala Wildlife Farm here in Bela Bela. This has been a Gistvestigation. And that's it for today's show. Corey Wara is the assistant producer of The Gist. Joel Patterson is the senior producer. Michelle Pesca is COO of Peachfish Productions, both of which can rot, one from the outside in, the other from the head down. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to advertisecast.com slash thegist. Oomperu, jeeperu, duperu, and thanks for listening. <laughs>